Alright, so hello everyone and welcome back to another most sordid episode here on the Sorted Skeptics where we're going to continue to dive in to this distinction between freedom and tyranny. Now this is going to be part two, the Canadian edition, where we're going to run into, uh, well I guess right up against the narrative and uh, try to talk a little bit uh, to you guys about how to think for yourselves and why that's valuable. So you all ready to dive right in there, Tim? I'm ready, let's get to it. Right, so first up, we got a quote from Jonathan Swift. You can't reason people out of positions they weren't reasoned into. Now, I'm sure this is something you guys have probably come up uh, against a lot in your conversations with people regarding the prevailing mainstream media narrative when you try to present your own opinions, and if it goes up against that narrative, then you probably get a bit of pushback from the people in your lives. So we're going to dive into a few more contemporary examples, and we're going to start off with the nature of compliance. Do you want to get us started there, Tim? Yeah, so... We believe one aspect of virtuous behavior lies in knowing when it's right to follow and obey, but also when it's necessary to lead through an example of rebellion. So in essence, drawing a line in the sand, so to speak, realizing what is acceptable, when enough is enough. So Ontario has been under a stay-at-home order since April 8th, and recently extended to until June the 2nd. And we are known as one of the hardest lockdown provinces, essentially, in the world. Yeah, I mean, even the United States, and this is, uh, you know, they're starting to come out of it a little bit. And I guess for us, I mean, we're now entering, obviously, we're well into year two of two weeks to flatten the curve. <laughs> so, whoops. whoops, yeah, I guess that, uh, that might not have uh, gone over as well as they had planned. And now we're starting to look at the narrative changing to the fourth wave. So I'm sure by the time we're on the ninth or tenth wave, I'm sure it'll only be, be two weeks at that point, right, Tim? Well, I just have to say, thank God people are starting to wake up and, and realizing the farce that this that this is yeah. and how many contradictions there are with these public orders and mandates and quote-unquote health guidelines yeah i mean i'm sure the majority of people would have been just fine with you know let's just all stay home for two weeks so that we don't completely flatten our public health care system but now we're entering year two and that that narrative seems to have largely gone out the window and now it's really about you know we just don't want to kill grandma anymore right tim of course not no. um so as outlined in a previous episode we already know humans don't function well in isolation and many people aren't listening to our new medical and political overlords and their quote-unquote science mm -hmm. so you know there are others who will shame those for not staying home calling them snowflakes or whatever or karens even mm -hmm. while the shamers make passivity and doing nothing a virtue right and this is uh a huge problem where I think people have been programmed to believe that obedience is a virtue. And this is something that is explored very heavily in a book by Larkin Rose called The Most Dangerous Superstition. Now, if you guys haven't heard of Larkin Rose or read this book, I would suggest just pausing this podcast right now, hopping on Kindle and just grabbing a copy of this book because it is pretty life changing. And if you didn't drink before you read this book, <laughs> I'm certain you're going to start drinking after you read it. So I'm just going to run through a few quotes from the most dangerous superstition so that you guys can get an understanding of why it is that people find obedience to be a virtue. So let's first of all start off with what distinguishes a street gang from government. 
Now, largely, this is going to come down to how it's perceived by the people that they control. Like, nobody would actually believe that, I don't know, a, a Mexican cartel has any moral right to rule anybody. However, if the same behaviors are engaged in by those ostensibly wearing the label of government authority, then all of a sudden those behaviors not only become acceptable, they become noble and brave and patriotic. So, let's first off establish that there isn't really any such thing as government. It's kind of a, a conceptual idea that people have come up with to help them escape from personal responsibility. And what government manifests as nowadays is mostly just an illegitimate gang of thieves, murderers, and thugs masquerading as a rightful ruling body. Now, the entire debate about exactly how authority should be used, whatever that means, is about as useful as discussing how Santa Claus should handle Christmas. <laughs> right? So in truth, every authoritarian law, quote-unquote, is just a command backed by the threat of retaliation against those who do not comply. And further to this mythology, the one with the right to rule is the master, and the one with the obligation to obey is the slave. And I, that seems to be largely how that how we're construed nowadays is we're basically just free-range tax livestock, where instead of, I guess, forcing people at the point of a gun or the point of a whip to work the fields, we're allowed to go out and distract ourselves however we want to, but at the end of the day, our labor still belongs to someone else. And government, as it stands, cannot actually serve people unless it ceases to be government. Now, a system of organization, which is how a lot of people would classify government, can't really become a rightful ruler any more than a security guard can magically become a king. And there's nothing more that state worshippers find existentially terrifying than contemplating the possibility that government, their savior, their protector, their teacher, and their master, doesn't actually exist, and never did. The statist, for example, those who believe in the moral authority of government, will look to their fellow man and say, I don't trust you to be my neighbor, but I do trust you to be my master. Which is so inherently contradictory, I don't even know where to start with that. You don't trust people to live next to you, but of course you trust them to dictate through democracy, or however else you'd like to classify it, as dictating how you should live your life. So, all belief in government rests on this idea of the common good. And this justifies the quote-unquote legal initiation of force against innocence to one degree or another. And once that premise has been accepted, there really isn't any objective moral standard that limits how government behaves. And history shows us this all too clearly. That it is necessary to introduce immoral violence into society in order to prevent people from committing immoral violence is pretty ridiculous, in my opinion. What do you think, Tim? Mm -hmm. Well, it makes me think, like, who... Who are these people answerable to? And they're supposed to, who are government officials answerable to? They're supposed to be answerable to us, You'd right? Think. But we don't but the thing is they have so much inherent power already. Mm -hmm. They can do many things without any uh, consequence. Right. Really. And, and this is part of the lie, right? Where they the idea of government is classified as well. The government works for us. They're our employees, but our employees wouldn't get to dictate how much they're paid. <laughs> they wouldn't get to dictate what they're going to do. And they wouldn't get to threaten us with consequences if we didn't do what they wanted to do. That's not the mm. relationship between an employer and employee. That's the relationship between a master and a slave. So mm. what I'm going to do is just run through another quote uh, from the chapter of the unavoidab unavoidability of judging. So, let me just kind of walk you guys through the mindset 
of the statist. All right. So I believe it is good to obey the law. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I can kind of see where you're coming from there. In other words, they cut me off, obviously. <laughs> I judge that I should do as the legislators command. So I judge that rather than making my own decisions about what I should do, I should subjugate myself to the will of those in government. They know best. Of course they know best. They're government. How else would they be government? We voted for them. Whatever. So, in other words, I judge that it's better for my actions to be dictated by the judgment of people in power instead of by my own personal judgment. So I judge that it is right for me to follow the judgment of others. And it is wrong for me to follow my own judgment. In other words, I judge that I should not judge. <laughs> right? So this, this is where we start to see the inherent contradiction of people that believe in this sort of status mindset. So to be blunt, the belief in authority serves as a mental crutch for people seeking to escape the responsibility involved with being a thinking human being. Yeah, and this is really interesting because there seems to be this cultural idea that judging things is inherently bad. It's judgmental, Tim. We don't want to be judgmental and kill grandma. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? That would be that would be bad. We have to obey because obeying is good and not obeying is bad. Mm -hmm. And this sort of simplicity makes it much easier for me to catch up on the latest episode of The Bachelor, obviously, because we need our distractions. Okay. So, so don't think, no matter what our, our slaves, our, our masters tell us, don't think about what they're telling us. Just complete. Just just comply. I mean, that's what makes you a good person. That's it's, what's safe. Of course. Yeah. It's safe. It's compliant. It's, it's good. It's comfortable. And it's easy. Right? Ah. <laughs> Very easy. So let's talk a little bit about the Milgram experiments. Now, if you guys aren't familiar, this is a, uh, a study that was done many, many years ago. And I'm sure if anyone has any... Uh, any history studying psychology at all, this is one of the first things that comes up, and it really goes to show how much damage this belief in authority can do. So the belief in authority allows basically good people to dissociate themselves from acts of evil that they themselves commit, relieving them of any feeling of personal responsibility. So despite the way that people often talk, doctors don't give orders. They're authorities in the sense that they're knowledgeable in their field and they've authored papers on that subject, but that doesn't give them any right to tell you what to do under threat of force. Now, what happened in the Milgram experiments was they got a bunch of people to come in, sit down with this machine, and they basically said, we're going to try to test people's memory. And every time they get an answer wrong, you're going to give them a little shock. And they had the knob that would basically increase the perceived voltage. Now, the person that they were apparently shocking was actually just a confederate of the experimenter, right? Now, these people weren't giving any, given any incentive or any threat of punishment. All they were given was a guy in a white lab coat with a clipboard that said, the experiment must continue, right? So all they were able to do was just diffuse that responsibility onto a perceived authority. And some of these people, many of them in fact, were willing to shock a complete stranger to death under the mm. orders of an authority without any incentive, mm. right? It's not like, hey, if you, if you shock this guy to death, we're gonna give you a million dollars. Or if you don't shock him to death, I'm gonna throw you in a cage. It was just, hey, you got to shock this guy. Sorry, man. I, the experiment's got to go on. But before they died, they would hear them screaming oh, in pain. Brutal screams of agony. And these people were like, oh, man. And, you know, these some of these these participants, they were in tears, but they kept doing it. They just mm. kept doing it. I mean, there was very few people that would be like, no, fuck this. I'm not doing it. Go to hell. You son of a bitch. You know, like that yeah. was that was just not something that would happen. And the other one was the uh, the Stanford prison experiments. Remember those where they, they would have a bunch of guys pretend to be uh, uh, prison guards and a bunch of guys pretend to be prisoners 
and they had to shut that experiment down because of how yeah. bad it got. Within three days. Within three days, these people became absolute tyrants. The kind yeah. of shit that they would put these other people through, and it was all make-believe, and they knew it was yeah. all make-believe. They were, like, beating the jail cell... Yeah. <laughs> the, the prisoners. Yeah, I mean, like, the kind of shit that these people were doing just because they believed that they possessed the authority to do so, mm. it really goes to show that the root of evil, you know, isn't money, obviously, as the Marxists would like us to believe. It's <laughs> it's it's a belief that you possess authority or you're acting mm. on behalf of an authority. This is, this is really what causes people to behave in a really evil way. I mean, completely normal people that would otherwise be half-decent, once you give them that little seed of authority or believe that they're acting on its behalf, then shit really hits the fan. Yeah, it's like power without any boundaries. Yeah, and, and that's terrifying, right? I mean, we've mm -hmm. seen in the in the 20th century alone what can happen when people have this, this boundless idea, right? Now, one of the other th ways that people will construe government is, well, you know, they offer us services, so we obviously have to pay for them. Now, take this particular scenario, for example. Suppose a stranger came up to you and said that he mowed your lawn or left an item at your house and now demanded that you give him a thousand dollars. Okay, like, like, we would all think that's pretty ridiculous. Mm -hmm. However, right? Though you never agreed to such any, any such arrangement at all, right? It would obviously constitute extortion, and you would have no duty to pay, even if the guy actually mowed your lawn or left you something. Yeah, you never agreed to it. Right, so y nobody has the right to, I guess, give your consent on their own behalf. That's just not the way reality works. So what do you think, Tim? If somebody were to come up to you and say, listen, I just provided you with this good or service, and now you have to pay me, would you feel any real moral obligation to pay that person for a service that you didn't agree to? Of course not. It's like someone would be forcing something onto me and just blindsiding me with, with something, you know? Right, and I see the same sort of thing where people say that, oh, you know, well, we get a whole lot back for the the taxes that we pay, but it's like, listen, if someone sticks a gun in your face, robs you of $100, and then go buys you a gift basket that's worth $100, <laughs> right? It's not like they didn't rob you in the first place. It doesn't matter what the what happens with the money after the fact. It doesn't change the nature of what actually happened to get the money in the first place, right? Yeah, so, like, we're born into the system, and, you know, did we have a choice as to being a part of it. <laughs> well, know? no, and, and that's the other thing, too. This this idea that it's like, well, you know, we, we have this social contract and then we all agreed to it, but it's like, you can't give consent on behalf of other people, right? Mm. It, it'd be like saying, like, if you drive down the street on a Sunday on this particular road, you've then agreed to give me your car. It's like, well, mm. why? <laughs> right? I mean, that would just be considered robbery like any other situation in the, the same circumstance, right? So this idea that we can all of a sudden just get together and if we get enough people, that means that we can just give consent on behalf of others. And that's not the way that consent actually works. Which is hilarious, because there's so much talk about consent nowadays, but none of it actually has anything to do with the real problem with consent, is that we're being told by our masters that this is what you have agreed to by virtue of you being born here. Right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, maybe our indentured servitude isn't any worse than it's been in the past, but it doesn't change the nature of our relationship with those who claim the ostensible right to rule over us. So, through my unquestioning obedience and loyalty to my masters, I have become a piece of the superhuman entity called government and act on its authority. As a result, the rules of human morality do not apply to me, and my actions should not be judged by the usual standard of human behavior. Right? I think this is a great quote as well from, uh, what the badge means uh, on page 92 there and 
what they're talking about is that those who claim the right to operate on behalf of government authority don't believe that normal standards of behavior apply to them because they have a badge to hide behind, right? Wow, how hypocritical is that? Yeah, a little bit, right? So, I mean, even if, for example, like if a, a slave master would fight with another to prevent some other slave master from stealing his slaves, it doesn't mean he's actually a friend of the slaves themselves. Mm, right? Interesting. Now, there are those who might be proud about some of the evil that's committed on their behalf. So, whether it's a soldier or some low-level bureaucrat, the job of all law enforcement is to forcibly inflict the will of the ruling class upon the general public. Nonetheless, most imagine that they're doing so, uh, you know, by, you know, and they're serving serving the people. Whatever that means. Whatever that <laughs> means, right? So, you know, from uh, most state mercenaries, from the paper pusher to the hired killer, simply say that they're just doing their jobs and imagine that that somehow absolves them of all personal responsibility mm. for their actions and the results of those actions. So who else said uh, we were just doing our job? Yeah, oh, I don't the know. In the 20th century, yeah, we, one yeah. of the biggest events. Yeah, we don't want to go there. Oh my God, yeah. Just doing their jobs as if that somehow makes it any better, right? Maybe another episode. Yeah, and, and this is what what's really weird about it. It's right when, when evil becomes the law, it ceases to be evil and becomes good, mm. right? So like the thing with the, the whole mask thing, right? Where it's like initially... If you wear a mask, it's because you're, you're now depriving a mask from a, a frontline healthcare worker. And then it became, if you don't wear a mask, you want to kill grandma. And eventually <laughs> it's going to get to a point where one day it was entirely necessary under threat of punishment, whereas the next day it's not necessary anymore. Right? So th this would be like, like a mathematician coming into the mathematics field claiming he wants to change the laws of mathematics. Nobody would take that guy seriously. They'd be like, why are you even getting into this field? We already have these rules in place, but this is exactly what happens with politicians and their belief that they have the right to change the laws of morality. Right? We can make 2 plus 2 equal 5 because it's what's best for the common good. Or it's what feels good, too. <laughs> yeah. Now let's move on to those who are proud of the robbery that they're subjected to. So a prime example in this case would be the citizen, quote-unquote, who proclaims that he is proud to pay his taxes. So, by analogy, a man may feel good about having freely given to someone in need, but he would not take pride in getting robbed by that same person. Mm -hmm. Right? So if you're being robbed and then your money is given to someone else, why would you take pride in that? If you help that person yourself, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, you probably did a pretty good thing for that person, but if somebody robs you and then gives to that person, you don't get to take credit for that. Right? Yeah, instead of voluntarily. Right, and that's the difference, right? We go back to this idea of consent. So, with the help of political propaganda, they hallucinate that their contributions are actually helping society as a whole. They speak as if paying taxes means giving back to society or investing in their country or other such nonsensical platitudes, right? But that depends on who's managing our resources as well. <laughs> a little bit, to, you know, like what the end result would be, but I guess it wouldn't change the inherent nature of that relationship, mm. right? <clears throat> right? So, the implication, as odd as it may be, is that, quote-unquote, the people can benefit as a whole by every one of these people being robbed individually. A little wow. weird, right? It's like, hey, listen, guys, if we all just agree to be robbed, we'll all, we're all going to be helped by that somehow. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, that makes sense. No, no big deal. It's just blindly accepted. Yeah, yeah, obviously. I mean, obviously, if we all get robbed, then someone's going to be helped by that. <laughs> but who? Right? Who? Probably not yeah. us. The devil's in the details. Okay. So, there are also those that are proud to be controlled. So, if a slave can be convinced that he should be a slave, that his enslavement is both proper and legitimate, 
that he is the rightful property of his master and that he has an obligation to produce as much as he possibly can for the master, then he doesn't actually need to be physically oppressed. Right? Once you get this into people's heads, like, we're talking, like, the the people that are enslaving you, I mean, we outnumber them about 2,000 to 1. So sheer force alone wouldn't actually be effective to oppress people. you got to have them revel in their own oppression in order for this to make sense and for it to actually work. So many people express pride at being law-abiding taxpayers, which means only that they are going to do what the politicians tell them to do and give these politicians money. Okay? So likewise, when a person objects to the level of taxation or other forcible control being inflicted upon him by the government... Others who are also being oppressed will often condemn the one who is objecting, telling him that if he does not like how he's being treated, then he should just leave the country, maligning a fellow victim of coercion for complaining about, well, I guess his own uh, indentured servitude. It's basically a sure sign that the person takes pride in their own enslavement. It's kind of sad, really. So there was a man named Frederick Douglass. He was a former slave, and this is what he had to say about it. I have found that to make a contented slave, it is necessary to make a thoughtless one. It is necessary to darken his moral and mental vision and, as far as possible, to annihilate his sense of power mm. of reason. He must feel that he... He must be able to detect no inconsistencies in slavery. He must be made to feel that slavery is right. And he can be brought to that only when he ceases to be a man. Right? So if you dehumanize people enough, if you distract them enough, and you basically eliminate their ability to reason then it's pretty easy to enslave them, right? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, it would make sense that the best kind of slave is the one that doesn't think they're one. Yeah, and, that, and that's huge, right? This is probably why so many yeah. people don't understand the nature of their own servitude, because they don't believe that they're slaves, because we've been taught mm. since day one, hey, we're in one of those countries that just happens to be free, right? But we're not really. I mean, you, you can't earn your own money without the government taking a cut. You can't buy your own property without the government taking a cut. You can't build your own deck without the government taking a cut. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. the, the idea that we live in a free country. I mean, well, I suppose it depends on compared to what, right? I mean, yeah, there's probably a lot less free countries in the world. I get that. That's not really the point here. The idea is compared to the idea of freedom itself. So without a feeling of being obligated to obey, being caught and punished by agents of government would be regarded in the same way that being bitten by a dog would be regarded as an unpleasant consequence that should be avoided, but it doesn't really have a moral element to it, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, if you understand the nature of your slavery, but you still go along with it because you understand that it's like, you know, I'm not going to go antagonize a dog and stick my hand in its mouth because I don't want to get bitten, right? That, mean, that doesn't mean the dog controls me on a moral level, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's, a, that's a different concept yeah, altogether. Yeah, threat of danger. Yeah, exactly. So there's the threat, and that's kind of what, what backs it all up, right? right? So, that was just a quick intro to The Most Dangerous Superstition by Larkin Rose. If you guys haven't had a chance to chew your way through this book, I would definitely recommend it. If you find yourself in the large or small L libertarian camp, this will make you a full-on ANCAP overnight, if you can read that quickly, which most of us can't. So, next up, the psychology, the essence of compliance. Yeah. So... Compliance is essentially rooted in a fear of punishment, which results in a loss of love and narcissistic needs from our parents. So while we're describing this, um, think of our relationship with government. 
and see if you can distinguish some parallels. So what this means is that during childhood, we're taught a certain moral code through the punishment and rewards of our parents by how we act in the world. So as children, when we do good things, our parents will ideally reward us by acknowledging, celebrating, and encouraging us when we follow the rules, which is what they think is good. Right. By paying attention to us and acknowledging our very existence, they are unconsciously telling us that we are good and we are worthy of their love. So these rewards and narcissistic supplies reinforce our behavior throughout our lives. We carry this code with us. So um, when we do what's considered wrong to our parents, we're, we're usually discouraged and punished in one of many ways, sometimes uh, through abuse, unfortunately, mm -hmm. through physical force or, or yelling. Mm -hmm. um, so here's where, you know, children are really brilliant because in order to deal with angry parents... Um, we usually identify with them or we internalize them. That is, we become like our parents who represent certain ideals. We become like them as a way uh, to manage their rage. And in essence, we direct the rage to ourselves when we don't do what's proper. Yeah. So this incorporation leads to the, the development of what Freud called the superego, or what is more commonly known as the conscience, which is the part of our personality that contains all the moral laws we follow, whether we are conscious of them or not. So it's essentially the the prohibitive part of our personality telling us what not to do. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that when we're children and we're entirely dependent on our parents, disobedience or a, a lack of love from the parents can mean death. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's a, it's an existential threat, right? But I mean, mm. if this is something that we don't grow out of and learn that, okay, we're now independent adults, we can do as we please. And we continue to just, well, I guess in this case, we'd probably be just projecting that same parental authority onto the government. Yeah. Exactly. You know, that, that seems pretty self-evident. So if we don't get over those early issues and realize that we're capable of surviving on our own, a lot of times we just look to this entity, you know, our, mm -hmm. our rulers, so to speak, is they'll take care of us. They'll solve our problems in the same way that our parents used to because we were literally dependent on them for our very lives. Yeah, it's a form of extreme dependency. Mm -hmm. So what would be the uh, the solution to that? Well... It's important to note that we develop our own inner parent, which serves the purpose of rewarding us with pride or good feelings. You know, when we do something good or we will punish ourselves with guilt or shame, just as our parents expressed that guilt and shame as well. Mm -hmm. So it's like the old saying, virtue is its own reward, is true because we usually feel good about doing the right thing because it lines up with our ideals of what a great person is. So it's like if I act properly, I'm on the right path towards goodness, truth, maybe even beauty, especially if my actions help someone else. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty heavy, you know, it's... <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd obviously have to grow into your own inner parent and learn what virtue is so that you can act in accordance with those virtues. Yeah, but I think the challenge of being an, an individual is understanding what are the most useful parts of the past that we can incorporate in the present and maybe even help us guide us to the future, right? So it's like a combo of order 
and chaos mm -hmm. in a way because the chaotic element comes in the future which is the unknown and the possibility yeah endless possibilities mm -hmm. whereas in the past we can derive some structure hopefully if our parents gave us enough structure you know mm -hmm. through these teachings that were probably inherited from <laughs> time immemorial right yeah so you know essentially uh, people are trying to uh in a, in essence maintain their their self-esteem and their overall sense of self by by following these rules um because if they don't like we mentioned before it could lead to loss of love or even a sense of dying <laughs> a death right yeah that kind of personal shame for not being compliant with those who rule us and yeah those in authority i suppose yeah and if we don't get that positive attention that's similar to psychological death in a way yeah because we like we like being recognized for things it's just in our in our nature generally right mm -hmm. um and you know I think this leads, uh, this also works in well with the shadow, right? Because as we grow up, we learn what's not acceptable. But some of the things that maybe we were taught were unacceptable may actually be good yeah, later and on. Yeah, necessary for our own self-preservation and being able to reincorporate those, I guess, previously banished elements of our psyche back into our psyche in a healthy and productive way. It's going to be a way of kind of rounding ourselves out and getting back a lot of what we lost out of a sense of self-preservation. Yeah, so like if you were taught never to, you know, uh, speak up to authorities, then, <laughs> you know, you you may likely uh, incorporate that and it might give you a lot of severe anxiety or guilt if you, um, yeah, stand up to somebody who has a perceived upper position of power yeah so i mean if, if every time you spoke up to authority as a child it resulted in someone pulling out a belt to beat you with then i can imagine why you probably wouldn't be all that incentivized to speak up in the face of a an adult authority exactly again, right because this is sort of how you've maintained your self-preservation over all these years and this is stuff that we carry with us for for many yeah. many years right and and some people might overcompensate and late, later on in life will you know um challenge them no matter what but um, it all it all depends on the individual. Yeah. So, um, in a way, this can lead to. I think this links to even childhood trauma, trauma which is essentially a shock to our system, our nervous system, and it's um, these traumas essentially lay a strong um, print on us in terms of um, uh, basically they will bring about various uh, animal-like um, responses, such as fight, flight, freeze, freeze yeah. submit, attach, right? So, um, and this is, what, this is what fear can do. So you know what this kind of reminds me of? It's the, uh, the old resistance is futile. Mm. You remember that? And I'm sure if you're, you're our age, you do remember Star Trek, The Next Generation. <laughs> the idea of a collective hive mind basically running roughshod over the entire galaxy. And this is one of the weird things when it comes to individuals versus groups, is that groups tend to be able to dominate individuals just by sheer numbers, right? So if you had one group that was so coherent, basically because they all share the same mind, 
then they could just run roughshod and destroy anybody else in their path. So the incentive for the individual might be to join that group because that might be a really good self-preservation strategy rather than going against it, which apparently is quite futile. Yeah, it's interesting because it brings up the idea of apathy, which mm -hmm. can be another you know traumatic response, which is essentially there's no point in standing up to this group because I'll just die anyways or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, or if, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. I remember that from the Bugs Bunny cartoons. <laughs> now, there are a few individuals who have gone out of their way to be non-compliant and suffered some pretty nasty slings and arrows in the process. Now, on May the 8th, Arthur Pulowski, a Canadian pastor from Calgary, was charged with several offenses related to defying of the provincial health guidelines related to how many people are allowed to gather indoors. And you guys might uh, remember some of the videos. Out! Out! Gestapo! Gestapo! Not welcome here! Come back with a warrant! Out, Out Nazis! Out Nazis! Out! Yeah, pure badass. This guy was a boss. You know, and he's uh, he's been dinged with, God, almost seems like, like what, over 100 charges and all this other kind of stuff. Just just wild. Yeah, yeah. And the mainstream media will make him out to be this felon. Um, you might also may want to consider that in November he was charged for feeding the homeless. So obviously this is a terrible individual. God, I bet he was giving them the tops of tomatoes. What a son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, off to the gulag with you, Mr. Uh, helping the Homeless. We don't want to do any of that. That's the government's job, apparently, because they, they obviously do such a great job with it. So I guess the question is, is the Christian church really that dangerous to these commie bastards? Well, it seems to be, because if you have a separate organization that has a different hierarchy of values, obviously that's just competition that needs to be wiped out mm. and it's not like the first time communists haven't gone after the christian church because yeah if you're not gonna worship government who are you gonna worship couldn't be god could it oh my god you wouldn't you wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't want to do that that would be that would be heathenism you know just... yeah and you know what's even more unbelievable was that i believe this was in march graceland church um Who's, which is run by Pastor Coates, another pastor who was jailed for violating these bullshit COVID-19 mm -hmm. health regulations. Um, after he returned from jail, they fenced off his church. Like, they actually built a fence or a wall. But, Tim, walls don't work. <laughs> right? That's what we've been told is, you know, you can't keep people out with walls, so, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Well, um... It's, uh, you know, it really just speaks to this whole state versus church theme. Mm -hmm. And I really got to say, it's absolutely disgusting. And I would much rather serve God than government. Yeah, once, uh, if, if you're given those two options, I don't know. I mean, it seems like the, uh, the last example of people citing and being like, well, if you serve God, I mean, we might have another example of the Crusades. It's like, okay, well, if your example is like... Cherry-picking the worst possible example. From over a thousand years ago, it's like, okay, maybe that's that's not, you know, the best outcome. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the responsibilities that we can lay at the feet of government for the atrocities they've committed, I mean, what is it? Something, I think in the last hundred years, democide has outnumbered homicide by two to one. So the pe people killing other people, half as many as people being killed by government. So the wow. question wouldn't necessarily be how do we live with government is or sorry how do we live without government it's how do we live with it because mm -hmm. clearly we can't right the the threat is much higher it doesn't seem like the natural order of things mm -hmm. so i was just driving around um this was in this was in march as well 
and I was listening to AM680, and they made this announcement that went something like, today marks 3 million deaths worldwide of the COVID-19 virus, which is the same population as Toronto and Richmond Hill combined. Ooh, that's a lot of people. They all died all at once for obviously having no comorbidities or anything like that. Just Toronto wiped off the map. I don't know what the technical term is, but I just call this fear framing because it makes me think of what's the messaging behind this announcement. So it's like they're trying to localize the threat in a big concentrated area, mm -hmm. even though that hasn't actually happened. That amount of death hasn't right. happened, but they're trying to make it like like it could happen right here. Right. So it's like if you had like, a, I don't know, a natural disaster that killed 100,000 people. And then you're like, that's like combining every daycare in all of Canada together as if all those children died all at once. It's like, yeah, but they didn't, did they? Yeah, you know, they, they just framing it that way yeah. just shows you how disingenuous the messaging really is. Saying, yeah. this is the equivalent of the population of this giant local metropolitan area." Could you imagine if all of those people just got wiped out all at once? It's like, okay, well, how many people die in a year normally? Right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So when I heard this, you know, I initially felt kind of anxious because that's what they're going for, obviously. Yeah. But then I felt really angry because. This is a widespread message, and they obviously pre-constructed this, mm -hmm. and it speaks to the dominant theme of, of fear and control with this whole thing, right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, to be honest with you, that the cynical side of me kind of agrees with that, but also maybe the more pragmatic side of me thinks that it's probably just for clicks. Oh, you yeah. Know, it's, no it, doubt. A lot of it's probably just advertising revenue. The more you can make people afraid, the more they'll tune in. Oh, for sure. So there's that's not great, but... You know, I, I definitely don't like the uh, the framing now. Yeah, it's very manipulative in nature. And and on more of the uh, the manipulative nature, here's an article coming from uh, from the Star, which is you know not the not the best newspaper. Maybe it's a former newspaper. We can say that. <laughs> so, title: Governments across Canada withholding COVID nineteen data to regulate public reaction to pandemic, says Access to Information uh -oh. advocate. So, yeah, to regulate public reaction. To the pandemic and yeah i can i can kind of see where they're coming from i mean we wouldn't want to have mass panic would we i mean you know people might just stay locked in their homes for a year i mean what <laughs> oh my god wouldn't want to have that right i mean what would happen to the economy and it's like yeah okay <laughs> okay yeah i wouldn't want that would we so from uh, vancouver here so governments across canada have been withholding covid19 data in an exercise of paternalistic information hoarding likely meant to regulate public reaction to the pandemic, says an access to information advocate. And, again, this, this doesn't really surprise anyone. Mm -hmm. The idea that the government would want to control the exact narrative as to how this is being perceived, because this is how you keep people scared. This is how you keep people under control. You make sure that they, well, they're too scared to do anything other than what they're told, and... You know, then you don't have to use force. You can just use people's yeah. fear, and then they're just going to do what you tell them to do, right? But they'll withhold what they deem is necessary, because they're the arbiters of truth. Of Obviously, course. yeah. So I mean, the B.C. government <laughs> was quickly on the defensive Friday morning after a Vancouver Sun report showed how little of the data the province has collected, or that it has collected, has been released to the public. Uh, the paper has been leaked to reports from the B.C. Center for Disease Control, both over 45 pages long. So... Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the way this seems to work is the government will have a prevailing narrative and the media will propagate this narrative, and largely because most of our media here in Canada is funded by the government. And, 
there was that thing a while ago, was it like Trudeau offered like, what, $500 million to certain news outlets? And it was like this, oh, we got to have accountability in the news, so we're going to fund it. Wait, wait, come again? You're going to, you're going to what? Oh, yeah, yeah, we want people to be objective, so we're going to pay them to be objective. What? Yeah, that's not going to make it biased <laughs> so, so you, at all. So you, the government, are going to pay people to be objective about the government? <laughs> what planet are you living on? Like, how does that make any sense at all? It's like, okay, yeah, well, we better be objective, otherwise we're not going to get that sweet government money. Uh, yeah, we got a question in the back. Uh, sir, are we still objective if uh, we're getting paid by the government? Uh, yes. Next question. <laughs> Can I withdraw my tax dollars that go to the CBC? Oh, obviously not, because you didn't voluntarily provide those tax dollars, right? I.e. the commie broadcasting propaganda channel? No kidding, yeah, the Pravda. You know, it reminds (laughs) me, um, there was a a city some of you guys have probably heard in relation to the the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Mm. There's a city called Pripyat. That's how you pronounce it, apparently. Pripyat. Nice. But apparently, they'd have like a power outlet. Right, and right next to it, you'd have a radio outlet that you'd plug your radio into, and this is where the government news would come literally right in through a jack in your living room. You know, like it was just no. another outlet you just plug your radio into, and that was the only source of information you get. It would just be a no. hole in the wall you plug in, and this is literally how they did it. Right, direct to your living room. Direct to how your convenient, living room. perfectly objective, <laughs> not objectionable at all. You know, we can't have any of that 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 question in the narrative thing. I mean, people might panic and then. Lock right. down and kill grandma and eat the tops of tomatoes and all those things <laughs> that we don't want to have people do, right? All right, so uh, back to the news article. So, next one we got here. Recent random police check, order in Ontario, and public backlash. Okay, so just taking a quick look through the article here. And, okay, they didn't even mention the public backlash. Okay, that makes sense. Next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you wouldn't want to wouldn't want to mention any of that public backlash. I, I just think it's so awesome how so many police departments rejected that order. Oh man, yeah, that the, is the, epic. Yeah, you know what? I'm I'm gonna tell you guys something right now, and it's it's not my opinion. It does come from Larkin Rose as well, but there are no such thing as good police officers. There are good people who happen to be police officers, and it turns out that most of them are here in Canada. And mm-hmm. As much as I'm not a huge fan of cops, based on the nature of their relationship with the government and how they're, you know, they just enforce the will of the rulers and all that kind of stuff, we probably have the best cops here in Canada that we have that there are anywhere in the world. Hmm. And we can see this as evident based on their rejection of the power that the government gave them. They're like, listen, we want you to stop people and question where they're going from and or coming from and going to and all. And they're just like, uh, no, yeah, we didn't sign up for that. Sorry, bud. Yeah, they recognize that they went too far. Yeah. That's like, that's weird. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad they're kind of like cooler heads prevailed in that circumstance, but it's so weird that the police would be like, "No, no thanks. <laughs> you know, no thanks. We don't we don't need any of that. We have we can we can kind of keep people safe without all that tyrannical bullshit." And I guess the yeah. Doug Ford had to kind of retreat back on that one and walk away with his tail between his legs and and all that. Yeah. But thank God it speaks to their integrity a little bit. Yeah, you know, and you know, I got to give it to them and give them credit for that and yeah. say that yeah you're uh yeah you're probably right on there we we don't, probably don't need any more yeah. any more checkpoints and, and all this kind of stuff yeah sometimes you got to give the devil its due <laughs> yeah you got you got to give the devil its due they they the selection criteria for police in Canada is so stringent that they have a process of filtering out a lot of the worst elements now it's obviously not a perfect system but the fact that that's in place has probably prevented a great deal of tyranny right because the the ruling class isn't going to be able to enforce using force 
any of these dictates without a compliant police force. And as long as our police force remains on the side of freedom, to one degree or another, I mean, obviously not full a degree, they're, you know, they're still police, but hmm. the, uh, I guess that we can, we can still kind of have some semblance of being free-range mm. tax livestock rather than being put in a cage and forced to lay eggs for the ruling class and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and some recognition of common sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we just want to briefly mention, too, how, you know, there were Montreal, there were anti-lockdown protests in Montreal, and, of course, they have this, you know, nightly curfew. But if you, if you search for video, you'll find that there's deployment of riot police, for peaceful protesters, um, and I, it just makes it's it's unbelievable in a way. So, you know, something you might want to check out if you're if you're interested in that. So. Yeah, yeah, and Quebec's always been kind of weird with that. You know, they they, yeah. they they do get pretty heated, but their police also tend to respond yeah. quite quite strongly. So I'm not really familiar with Quebec's like history, so when I just saw that I was like, What the hell? Yeah, I mean the few times that I've been there, I think the last time I was there they had they were in the middle of some uh police strike, so all the police were wearing uh military cargo pants as a way mm. of protesting instead of wearing their uniform pants. Hmm. And I'm like I never really understood it because it seemed a little silly to me to just change your pants rather than I don't know, maybe just quitting and not being a member of that same kind of cult, but I, guess, I don't know. Yeah, I guess the point we're trying to make is, like, you know, there's a certain universality to right and wrong, so <laughs> yeah. even if it happens in Quebec, it's still wrong. <laughs> exactly, it doesn't change because you speak a different language, right? Or in a different geographical location. Exactly, so yeah. <laughs> now, what's the latest we got from the... The rebel news with Ezra Lamont here. <laughs> so, uh, also in April, there was a very interesting story where um, Ezra and his crew, they were staying in an Airbnb on a boat, and the police just raided their boat without without a warrant. And, of course, uh, there was a standoff, and Ezra was very pissed. And even one of their journalists, uh, David Menzies, was was arrested for again standing up for their. God, that guy's always getting arrested, oh, all the time, just getting arrested. There's video of it, though. Yeah, and I, and I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, at the end of the day, the the force that's being applied against these guys for going against the narrative it's it's pretty uh, pretty unbelievable. Yeah, for for being actual journalists. Yeah, how about for, that? Yeah, how about that? Doing a doing a bit of that. What, and there was a lot of pretty nasty remarks that were directed towards these guys. Yeah, a lot of anti-Semitism, calling them Jew media. Oh, Jew media. Brutal. Even though other people call him an anti-Semite, so you square know, that one for me. Yeah, I guess when you're part of a a weird collective hive mind, you can actually play both sides of that. And be like, well, he's both an anti-Semite internalized yeah. or something, but he's also the Jew media. Yeah, yeah, so it's the moral relativism of these, you Yeah, know. but I mean, it must be really convenient to be able to hit people from both sides like that, right? It's oh, like, it's, you're both this and it's opposite. It's like a classic pincer. Exactly, That's it's like... a pincer movement, right? It's like, you're both this and it's opposite. <laughs> well, how do, you, how do you really counter that? <laughs> it's like, if I, try to, if I try to argue with you, I'm going to be agreeing with you. <laughs> you're both these things. You're, so you're, you're both these things at the same time, despite them being polar opposites. So if you try to argue against us, yeah. you're either going to be agreeing with one side or the other. Yeah, you're double bad. Yeah, <laughs> double bad, yeah. God damn, this Orwellian language, man, I hear you. Uh. All right, so another thing that we wanted to talk about was the Dunning-Kruger effect. And this is an idea of 
the the less you know about something, the less you're able to effectively evaluate it. Like, let's mm. say you had a plumber that has 30 years of experience fixing pipes, and he comes across this old building, and a new plumber comes along to offer a separate quote. The old plumber takes one look at the building and is like, nope, not not touching this, getting the hell out of here. And the new plumber's like, why? There's I can just fix this, and fix this in an hour, no problem. And then all of a sudden, the building floods. It's like, well, why? It's because the, the older plumber knew that he would not be able to fix it because he's got that much knowledge and experience with the new plumber, maybe being a little bit more naive, didn't possess enough knowledge to actually know that he has no idea what the hell he's doing. Right, so they had kind of like an inflated ego oh, and yeah. think he knew what he did it. Yeah, and I see this a lot with, with people that say trust the science. A lot oh. of these, you know, 100% of these people, maybe I'm exaggerating, who cares? <laughs> it's my show. <laughs> Fuck off. <whatever. laughs> so a lot of these people that say trust the science have no idea how the scientific method actually works, what its limitations are, or what it's actually claiming to do. Right? Mm. Public mm. policy prescription is not the realm of science because it's necessarily within a hierarchy of values that are subjective and can change. But if you're talking about science, you're talking about, you know, producing predictable and repeatable measurements based on observation. That's not something mm. that creates public policy. Yeah, it's like you're trying to see how your hypothesis isn't true. <laughs> right, the rejection of the null hypothesis. But ask anybody that says trust the science to explain to you what a null hypothesis is, and they'll just stare at you like you just came from Mars. So when they say trust the science, they're really saying trust what's being spoon-fed yeah, to you. Yeah, trust the narrative. Like a baby. As if the science is the narrative, right? But that's a, yeah. that's a clever move, man. I'm going to tell you. like that's a, that's a very smart tactical decision mm -hmm. to just get people to say... Here's this really, yeah. here's this great thing that we trust called science. Now let's just co-opt that and just make it say what we wanted to say. And be anti-scientific. Yeah, and then anybody <laughs> who disagrees with us just hates science and wants to kill Grandma off to the ah! off to the tomato top gulag with you, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, and th this is just how it all plays out, right? But yeah, it's the same idea, and I'm sure we've mentioned this in the past episode that science can tell you everything about a field except how to walk through it. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know. Mm -hmm. Because it's I mean, good for I'll, describing. Right. It, it's you're you're talking about different levels of analysis. So when people start incorporating and mixing and matching science with values, then you know you can start running down some uh, some pretty dark paths, especially if people don't really understand science at all to begin with. Yeah, it's you like know? you know not having proper boundaries for certain systems of analysis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you can just sort of be like, well, science tells us exactly what we should believe. It's like what? No, it doesn't. It's not about belief at not all. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. What are you talking about? It's like, but you know, this is part of the uh, part of the narrative. And if you can systemically remove people's understanding of science through government schools, then they don't really have any basis with which to argue with you, right? Mm. They can't counteract that. Be like, well, yeah, how did you uh, reject your null hypothesis? What meth methodology did you use to create valid <laughs> and repeatable results? Uh, off to the gulag, <laughs> son of a bitch. You know. So yeah. Anyway. One of the other stories I wanted to talk about was, uh, this was actually from back in June 2020 when uh, a lot of the parks in New York were beginning to get shut down, but it seemed to be specifically a lot of the Jewish areas. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I, know, I wonder know. why. I mean, it's, you know... <sighs> Maybe it's the whole let my people go thing? Yeah, it could be, man. I don't know what it is. It's like, you know, chosen people, but chosen for some pretty pretty nasty treatment, I'm going to tell you that. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate for sure. And another uh, story we want to talk about was uh, Roman Baber suing the Ford government. 
Yeah, and this was an MP who was uh, dejected from the caucus for presenting a, an article uh, outlining the negative effects of lockdowns. Presenting but, a counter-narrative, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, but Doug Ford uh, couldn't handle that. No, because obviously that makes him look like a dumbass, which he is. <laughs> so we can't have any of that, so off so, to the gulag uh, with you. <laughs> Enjoy the tops of your tomatoes. You know what's... Banished, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Banished. But... Thankfully, um, Roman Baber has uh, made an attempt to sue the Ford government for interfering with religious gatherings. And yeah, such. good on him. So I really, I really admire that. You know, sure. I mean, I, I mean, I don't like using the uh, the courts as a way of, I guess, resolving disputes because again, it's still another statist institution. But you got to kind of play the hand you're dealt, and he's working within the system to try to fix this retarded issue of. Ford not wanting anyone to question his judgment. Exactly. It's not like he has any judgment to begin with. He's just deferring judgment to his quote-unquote medical experts. Yeah, exactly. He just follows what they say. As if he would be able to select medical experts in the first place, right? <laughs> it's like, what, 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 what qualifies... Yeah, who, who chose those guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, wonder, I wonder who was it that chose those specific uh, medical experts that he's referring to, I mean, and ignoring all the ones that disagree with him. That's uh, pretty nonsense uh, shit right there. Anyway, mm-hmm. what do we do about this? Now, there are a few examples in history that we can turn to, and one of them that I think it's a great example is Gandhi. Passive resistance, right? Because hmm. here's the problem. If people are saying, oh, well, maybe we can just solve our problems by getting violent, it's like, no, you're just going to make the problem worse, right? Because all the state wants you to do is get violent so that they can justify an increase in their own power. Germany did this with uh, false flag attacks with Belgium before they invaded them. Right. Yeah, you're resorting to their level, yeah. in essence. Yeah, and you definitely don't want to do that. Now, this is going to imply, or entail, I guess, a lot of sacrifice on the parts of individuals. So, one of the things that Gandhi advocated for was, you know, nonviolent resistance, which came in three different parts. So, uh, the part of sat, which implies openness, honesty, and fairness. So, each person's opinions and beliefs represent part of the truth. In order to see more of the truth, we must share our truths cooperatively. Hmm. This implies a desire to communicate and a determination to do so, which in turn requires developing and refining relevant skills of communication. And a commitment to seeing as much of the truth as possible means that we can't afford to categorize ourselves and others. So again, yeah, labels are for tin cans. They're not for people. It's uh, usually just a intellectually lazy way of dismissing people's arguments without actually having to address them. Yeah, and that's great because it speaks to an allegory that is actually described in um, Jonathan Haidt's Righteous Mind, mm. where he talks about the elephant and the eight blind men yep. who each describe a different part of the ele- elephant, right? It's so. like, well, this part's long and it's like moving around. It's like, what are you talking about? The part over here, which I guess is the same part, is just <laughs> static and not moving. Well, this part over here is really squishy, guys. It's like, well, we're obviously describing the same thing because all these things are somehow related but mm-hmm. yeah anyway the next one amisa refusal to inflict injury upon others it looks like gandhi was kind of an og when it came to the non-aggression principle nice <laughs> so respect words do so amisa dictated or uh, is dictated by our commitment to communication and sharing of our pieces of the truth violence shuts off channels of communication mm-hmm. right once you go violent you don't really get to go back from that so the concept of Amisa appears to be in most major religions, which suggests that while most people may not practice it, it is respected as an ideal, something that we could all aspire to. 
Amisa is an expression of our concern that our own and others' humanity be manifested and respected, and we must learn to genuinely love our opponents in order to practice Amisa. And finally, uh, Tapasaya, I think that's how you say that, uh, a willingness for self-sacrifice. Uh, let's see here. So, one who practices uh, Satyagra, I think that's how you pronounce that, must be willing to shoulder any sacrifice which is occasioned by the struggle with they, or sorry, which they have initiated. Rather than pushing such sacrifice or suffering onto others, I suppose through the state would be a great example, uh, lest the opponent become alienated and access their portion of the truth become lost. And it's always got to be provided in a face-saving, or it always has to provide a face-saving way out for opponents. Now, this is one of the things I notice a lot with arguments. If your argument is, you're a dumbass, you kind of get this uh, cognitive dissonance where in order for someone to accept your argument, they also have to accept that they're a dumbass. Yeah, which is an ad hominem. Right, which not only is it ineffective, but it's just going to turn people away from the argument in the first place. It's not an argument. Right. I mean, how many times have you ever been convinced in your entire life that someone else was right because they called you a dumbass? (laughs) Or how many times have you just decided that this person is a dumbass and everything that they're saying is false? Right. Well, maybe if they call me a dumbass, I'll just I can just respond with if you say so. Yeah, I guess I must be a dumbass. I'm, a, I'm having a conversation with you apparently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So maybe I have turn just, around like that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, don't, don't be a dick. That's a that's a great way to just not bring anyone around to the truth. So you know, try to try to keep a level yeah. head. And I mean, who's more of a dumbass, the person who's a fool or the fool that's arguing with them? Mm-hmm. You exactly. Know? And you know. I just want to mention um, that second part, the refusal to inflict injury on others. It's great because it speaks to the element of cooperation rather than going to war. Right? Oh, yeah. You know, and I think cooperation is one thing that could help us get out of this mess rather than, you know, focusing on the differences and what separates maybe what's universal and what are some things we can actually agree upon. Yeah. So again, the goal here for Gandhi is to discover a wider vista of truth and justice, not to achieve victory over the opponent, I guess in a political or or moral sense, right? The idea is to just, yeah, let's get to the truth. Who cares who's right? Either I'm yeah. going to be right and my argument stands, or you're going to be right and I get a better argument out of it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, it's so, less ego yeah, warfare. Take your ego out of it. For God's yeah. sake, I mean, if you don't do that, I mean, you're... Do we care about what's right anymore? Uh, apparently not. You know, we, <laughs> we care about being right, not what's right. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So um, in this last part, we just want to go over some parts. Uh, this is derived from COVID-19, the politics of a moral pandemic, which we talked about in our last episode, and the social consequences. So we're still dealing with and will continue to deal with in the foreseeable future and the collateral damage caused by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The elderly and the, the disabled are the most defenseless to the virus and its illness, while small business and wage laborers are the most economically unsafe. So the anticipated result is the strengthening and growth of both political power aiming at tyranny and economic and bureaucratic power knowledge. Mm-hmm. So these results are mutually reinforcing with a compelling regime of truth one size could be made to fit all. And you know, this speaks to our quote unquote medical experts who have a ridiculous amount of authority and in government approved medical experts trying, Tim. 
trying to enforce morality when clearly it's not working. No. Um, so the consequence for age cohorts are rather different. In reality, the age-specific effects of COVID meant that public policy requiring all members of society to be treated in the same way consistently have a disproportionate injurious effect on the young, reducing risk to the relatively wealthy and powerfully elderly members of society has been paid for by the younger members of society who are comparatively poor and powerless. Mm-hmm. And I think it's weird that the the idea that medical experts have been sort of appointed to these arbiters of policy decisions. Yeah. Where it's like, uh, well, Tim, I've got your blood results back here. Uh, it turns out you're a dick and you got to listen to what I have. It's like, <laughs> let, let's get this guy some compassion. Stat. Yeah. <laughs> but, Let's force it straight on. Right. Yeah, let's let's get this stuff <laughs> injected into his veins, you know. So it's like Craig Lerner observed, by imposing mandatory safety precautions on everybody, irrespective of age, we are being we are being geriatric and cowardly. Yeah, a little bit, right? So we know Teresa Tam has dismissed political and economic reality by advocating the full containment and the reduction of liberties among potentially infected citizens with a clinical matter of factness that showed no thought of the implications that such actions would have on our political and social traditions. And I remember in January, um, there were some news articles saying how they, you know, finally recognized the mental, the mental uh, health uh, damage that has been wrought by COVID-19. And next thing they're going to be saying is, listen, because of all this mental health problems that we've created, we're going to need more government to fix these problems. Of course. Right? Obviously. That's the only solution. I remember uh, Mullen, you had an episode recently where uh, the doctor that he was interviewing did did some math and realized that, you know, for every one year of life that we've saved, we've lost 280 life years from all the people that are losing their businesses, committing suicide, not having children, and all of these other things in order to save, I don't know, maybe six months left on the tail end of somebody's life. Right, and Trudeau say, said something along the lines of, as long as we save one life, it'll all be worth then it. Then everything is worth it. As yeah. long as we save one Everything! God, could you imagine a more vacuous statement than Jesus. that? Like, everything is justified as long as we potentially save one life. So, well, yeah, but for how long? It's like, well, you know, this person's 90 years old, they have six comorbidities, but if we extend their life for six months, then all of your deaths are worth it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. and we, we looked at the cost-benefit analysis in our uh, in our episode on social isolation and its consequences so yeah yeah pretty heavy stuff yeah but very important so uh tegnell who is a stage epidemiologist uh in the process of instituting a tight lockdown one would have to impose a wide variety of draconian harsh cruel strict oppressive measures Mm -hmm. using legal means that would be imposed through the use of police force that would violate the latter and letter and spirit of liberty and damage the fabric of an open society. So we know Ford will take any step necessary, and he's he's basically outright said this. Mm-hmm. He's willing to lock it all down. So Doug Ford's alarming rhetoric has been trying to scare Ontario's into compliance. On September fourteenth, twenty twenty, Ford added to the COVID panic of the province. Following 31,000 tests and 313 new cases, 1% of those tested, Ford invoked a dreaded second COVID wave. Quote, I believe it is coming as sure as I am standing here, 
He also raised the threat of a new lockdown by saying, quote, every option is on the table. We will take up every step necessary, including further shutdowns, end quote. And here we are with another stay-at-home order extended with the announcement granting the police abilities for random pullovers. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, yeah, we, as we discussed, they kind of got rid of that. So yeah. I, I believe it is sure. I, I believe it is coming as sure as I'm standing here. He says as he is sitting down. It's <laughs> a great analogy. Yeah, man, this, this fucking guy. Like, and now they're talking about a fourth wave and, you know, next yeah. to, you know, the fifth wave. You know, 10 bucks says it'll probably be a fifth wave and a sixth wave. And this will just continue on, obviously, because there's no limiting principle. Yeah. No limiting principle whatsoever. Probably some good Vegas odds on the fifth wave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's uh, let's let's roll on that. It'll probably be as, as likely as betting on black and white at the same time. <laughs> black so, and red, sorry. Alarmist headlines emphasizing case growth will scare will scare some, but will only harden existing skeptics and create new ones. Bloody Pe- sorted skeptics. Yeah. People can read and are able to tell the difference between the rate of infection leading to the highest number of cases and the actual number of people admitted to hospitals because they contracted the virus. Have you seen those graphs where it shows the the number of cases skyrocketing, but the number of deaths remaining absolutely mm. stable? It's like, well, you'd think if there was more cases, you'd see a rise in deaths, but you don't. You just see a rise in cases. You'd think that with the media hysteria. Yeah, you'd think that, well, you know, there there would be a a corresponding rise in mortality along with these rising cases. But I suppose nobody who's ever, you know, taken a stats class has mentioned to anyone else, like, hey, listen, if you just test more people, you're going to get more cases. Yeah, or a quick Google search in a minute. Yeah, especially with a test they're using. Oh, my God. It's like (laughs) a test that's not even designed to detect viral load. It's just... A quick yes or no. I mean, you've had people, I think, was it Elon Musk? He was tested four times in one day. Mm. He was tested positive in his left nostril, negative in his right nostril, and then it kind of just kept going back and forth. He's like, so, you know, one of my nostrils is positive, but my other nostril is negative. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know. You know, and it seems so arbitrary, right? That, uh, you know, all of your rights can just be kind of taken away in the snap of, well, I say we have rights in the sense that, you know, we're supposed to have rights, but I think if this episode has proven anything it's we don't really have any rights you know yeah and that's as grim as it is it's something important to acknowledge yeah i mean this, if we value the truth yeah and uh, you know this this crap about the vaccine passport nonsense shit like mm. listen you either have bodily autonomy or you don't i mean i've i've never been a big fan of the anti-vaxxer types but unfortunately i find myself now largely in their camp because mm-hmm. things are starting to go more in that direction where they're saying listen you don't really have the ability to choose this anymore. If you want to participate in society, if you want to do, if you want to travel, if you want to get a job, if you want to, you know, you have to turn over your gov- your body to the state, basically. Yeah, whatever happened to my body, my choice. Right? Right. Obviously not. That's only in certain circumstances, Tim. We don't want to, yeah. we don't want to do that. That's, that's not in this circumstance. That's a, a universal <laughs> principle that doesn't apply yeah, here. Context is key. Context right. is key. Yeah. So, you know, when this when this thing started, I I intuitively wanted to adopt a wait and see approach. Just observe what's happening and we're seeing what's happening. Yeah. In in other words, a kill grandma approach. (laughs) Yeah, obviously. On September 22nd, 478 new cases were reported, but there were only 82 covid patients in all Ontario hospitals. There is a legitimate concern in that this number doubled since September 13. That is fair. But of the 82 who were hospitalized by September 22nd, 24 were in intensive care. 
with 11 of them in ventilators. In addition of the 478 new cases, eight people were over 80 years old, and three new COVID deaths were reported in a population of nearly 15 million people. Did One- you say three new COVID deaths in a population? Yes, I did. Jesus Christ. You heard right. That's so many people. One does not have to be uncaring to the 24 people in the intensive care to mention that the overblown emphasis on infection numbers is practically meaningless, except for unnecessarily increasing fear. This does not mean that increasing fear among the general population does not in some sense work. From the beginning, the Trudeau government's evidence strategy has been to present a stark choice, either selflessly shut down the economy to save lives or selfishly worry about the economy and condemn thousands to vicious illnesses. Thousands, Tim. As written in the National Post, May 16, 2020. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably a pretty obvious example, but if we really wanted to save lives, maybe the 30,000 people, I guess, in the U.S. alone who die from car accidents every year, we could just reduce the speed limit to 15 kilometers an hour. <laughs> right? Nothing would get done. We wouldn't get goods or services. Anymore. But hey, if one life gets saved, then, you know, we should all just burn our cars in our driveways, yeah. right? Because, you know, but this is an example that I used uh, in a fruitless, obviously a fruitless discussion on social media where I said, listen, you know, we have tens of thousands of people die in car accidents all the time, but yet we all still drive cars because we're adults and we can manage our own risk. But now, apparently, if you drive a car, you want to kill grandma. Well, that's the most logical conclusion. Obviously the most logical conclusion, which is why this is all so absurd, right? It's like, listen, yeah, I get, and I mean, you know, we've known people that have had COVID. People that have had serious consequences. It's not a fun ride for anybody, right? But at the end of the day, we wouldn't decide that, well, you know, as long as we die from something else, as long as it's not COVID, we should still just die from something else. Yeah, I mean, and and again, we have no choice in it. We have no vote on these various policies or whatever, you know. So. No, obviously, there's there's no there's no consent here because we're talking about the state. Ah, obviously, I forgot. Yeah, so we'll talk about a bit about the political fallout in Canada. So. The economic cost of forcing nearly three point three million Canadians into unemployment by twenty twenty is enormous. So while if individuals and companies were able to receive some form of help from their governments, many businesses will not be able to rebound from their losses. And many who do won't survive for long. Mm-hmm. The corrupting effect of subsidy is also being felt outside of the economic sphere, with many pushing for the lockdown to continue, whether they live in fear of being affected by the virus or because the subsidies have made it more desirable to remain home to remain home than to work as felix felix lecrec wrote in the 1950s the best way to kill a man is to pay him to do nothing oh that's harsh man that's deep i mean it, mm-hmm. the idea of uh and i mean like we've seen enough of this this serb stuff going out where it's like you have businesses shutting down because their employees are being paid more to not work than they are being paid to work right And it's like, oh, yeah, we all make more money. But it's like, okay, listen, the money you're being paid is rapidly losing its purchasing power. Yeah. Because if you just print a bunch of money and you don't have anything, uh, any goods or services Mm -hmm. in the same time, all that money does is just inflate in value. 
Yeah, hyperinflation yeah. and the printing of money decreases the inherent value. Yeah, stagflation, right? So and, yeah. and here's a simple example, and I know this is really oversimplified, but this is for the purpose of example. If yeah. you have an economy made up of $10 and 10 oranges, every orange is worth a dollar, right? If you double the number of dollars, you don't double the number of oranges, hmm. then your dollars are worth half as much. Mm-hmm. Right, you don't Value just decreases. Yeah, you don't you don't magically just create money. It's like what Winston Churchill said about trying to, you know, tax yourself into prosperity is like trying to stand in a bucket and lift yourself by pulling the handle. Nice. You know, it's yeah. probably kind of a butchered paraphrase, but you guys get the point. The idea is you can't just print more money and all of a sudden goods and services yeah. magically appear. This is a tax on the most vulnerable people in our country. People that have their savings completely wiped out by the fact that everything is now more expensive not because those goods got more expensive actually everything's actually getting less expensive as we have automation we have ai we have all these other things that drive down the cost of production but the problem is is the money you buy it with is rapidly losing value mm-hmm. more so than uh, a resource that can't be just printed out of thin air like apples or, mm. or lumber or or people's services right but if all of a sudden you can just print money it doesn't make everybody rich it makes everybody poor but try to convince that to someone that you're just giving them a $2,000 check. It's like, listen, you're not poorer for having this check. What? I'm pretty sure you know you're living in a clown world when you're encouraged to do nothing more than being productive. Yeah, and I mean, there is a, there's a psychological cost to that, a spiritual cost to that. Yeah, you know, which I mean, they I, ignore. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, don't care about that. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to sound like a... I don't know, it's, it's kind a of preacher. a... Cli- <laughs> a preacher, yeah, or a cliche or anything when I said, like, you know, work... It provides people more value than just the money, right? Yeah. It's a There's a spiritual aspect to it as well. The idea that you're producing enough value for the people around you that you can sustain yourself. There's a... Mm, and others. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge part of that that, that it's psychological. It's saying, listen, I'm producing enough value for other people that I can, I can cover my own costs. Providing something of value. Providing something of value, right? And I mean, this is a you know a big shout out to all of our contractor and painter friends out there that are actually out there in the market, producing something for other people, yeah. and getting and getting a a wage in exchange for that. Yeah, building something. How about that? Building something, right? Producing something, creating value for other people. I mean, I know that's something that isn't really taught to us in schools. Obviously, <laughs> why would it be? Why would you teach people how to not be oppressed? You know. Oh, God, I'm so mad at this whole situation. This is ridiculous. Me too. Yeah. But, I mean, here we are. Well, continuing on. By March 2020, the Canadian economy had shrunk 7.2%. But the pandemic shutdowns did not begin until the middle of the month. April saw the economy contract by 11.6%, the deepest drop on record. Jesus. About a third of the workforce remains underutilized by the fall of 2020, either as a result of the highest unemployment since the 2009 recession or as a result of roughly millions of individuals ceasing to look for work. Oh, man. Freedom Tunes had such an awesome cartoon about this. If you guys yeah. don't follow this channel on YouTube, check it out. They had a, a bunch of people drowning in a pit of quicksand. And then the economist comes out to be like, well, let's see what we can do to fix this. And then someone drowns in the quicksand. They're like, sick, there's only four people drowning in quicksand now. <laughs> and then all the people drown. They're like, oh, perfect, problem solved. No more people drowning in quicksand. It's like, yeah, because they've all drowned. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, and I mean, and this, is the, this is the world we live in, right? And I think what happens is, is the powers that be, they want you to be fat. They want you to be lazy. They want you to be useless so that you're dependent. They want you apathetic so you stop giving a shit. Yeah. Stop caring. Yeah. 
about what really matters. So you might be interested to know that across most of the private sector, economic activity shrunk in record amounts in March. Manufacturing fell 22.5%. Construction fell 22.9%. Retail and hospital hospitality fell 42%. And transportation fell 93.7%. 93.7? Are you kidding Is me? Is that crazy? You know what's... Yeah, no, you know what? I'll probably tell you the, the biggest hit to this is going to be international shipping about 80 percent of our goods come through ships right yeah because we don't produce much no no obviously (laughs) so when things come through ships and they start fucking with the shipping trade listen Mm. this is not going to be a problem that manifests itself overnight this is going to be something that takes quite a while for it to be manifest Mm. but when you start messing with international shipping this is why shit starting is starting to get really expensive You know, important exporting. Yeah, I mean, right. in, in construction, I mean, we know that the uh, you know lumber is going through the roof. Yeah, over three hundred percent. Yeah, and a lot of that's year. Yeah, and a lot of that's from them shutting down sawmills. You know, we don't wow. want we don't want anyone catching COVID at a sawmill. But you know, welcome to you know two thousand dollar costs for a few two by fours. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and they've been wanting to shut down factories if there's like um, five COVID cases. I, yeah. I heard. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Right. Like, unless that's... it's, unless it's Amazon, then just, just leave them alone. <laughs> we, I got to have my two day shipping and it's like, listen, yeah, I, I love Amazon too, but I mean, you know, hold them to the same standards as everybody else. Right. I'm surprised retail and hospitality only fell by 42% considering they basically just shafted them all. Right. And be like, you can't travel. You can't go to a restaurant. You can't go to a bar. You can't even see five of your friends. So, I mean, how the hell it only fell by 42% is a bit of a miracle, but... Yeah. Um, well, these are older statistics as well. They're not the most up-to-date. So, it'd be interesting to see what, yeah, the most current Yeah, sorry about that. We, we don't have the most sophisticated operation here. We're a little bit <laughs> a little bit behind the eight ball on that, but needless to th- say, things are getting a little bit, you know, worse than they maybe were in reported a few months ago. And, and they're probably going to continue to go this way until people pull their heads out of their ass and start pushing back against this nonsense. Likely. So, Rahm Emanuel echoed Winston Churchill by saying, Never let a good crisis go to waste. Definitely not. When developing the response of the Obama administration to the crash of 2008. You remember that? Oh, yeah. We just got out of school. Like, we were just out of university. Then all of a sudden, the economy collapses. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. So, minority governments tend to have a larger opposition and less powerful than a par, par, um, a party government with a majority. Right. Therefore, a minority government must actively seek agreement with other parliamentary parties and so-called stakeholders, stakeholders in order to get anything done. Finding agreement is typically difficult and requires political skill, i.e. good judgment and the ability to cooperate with others. Have you ever heard of the concept of a bill that's full of pork? No. All right, so... I don't mean to be anti-Semitism or anything here. So just, just go <laughs> with me on this. Anti-kosher, yeah. Right, we don't want to go anti-kosher here, but when when opposition parties have to work together, basically what you have is like, listen, you want to pass through your, you know, let's not let people starve to death bill? We're going to have to throw in this, uh, these few other provisions into your bill that have nothing to do with it in order to get our agreement. Mm. So you end up getting these massive, like, 1,300-page mm. massive bills that in order for everybody to get what they want, they all just agree to everything. Just to get what they want, they're like, yeah, 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 just put everyone whatever. You know, it's not like it's our money or anything like yeah. that. We just print it, no big deal. In and order then to it, make sure most people vote. Yeah, right. And then once uh-huh. everybody, and then it gets pushed through, the media will report on the more favorable aspects of it, 
And then 10 years down the road, when the state is saying, hey, what you're doing is illegal, it's like, what do you mean? It's like, well, we passed this in Parliament 10 years ago. As wow. part of that completely unrelated bill that, we, you know, we needed all this agreement on it. So, you know, we're going to put it all together into this big, massive super bill that we obviously have to all agree to. And it's full of so much crap that has nothing to do with the name on the bill that nobody really questions it, right? Because it's like, if... If you don't want us to go and create a bunch of war on the other side of the world, well, obviously you hate the, uh, let's save the poor people from typhoid fever bill. <laughs> well, what do those things have to do with one another? Well, they don't, but they're in the same bill because we have to get, you know, all this agreement. Oh, so it's like a special surprise. Of course, but I mean, you consented to it because, you know, 13% of the population agrees with it. Oh. And, and gave your consent on their behalf. Right. Democracy. <sighs> democracy in action. True yeah. democracy. True democracy. So these agreements also require enough maturity and humility to recognize that the ideas and political positions of others, however opposite to one's own, may have some validity. So if nothing else, they are valid because the views of opposition MPs represent the views of those who elected them in various parts of the country. Dismissing the views advanced by their representatives is to dismiss those who sent them there. Hmm. The initial instinct of the Trudeau government's effort to take advantage of COVID-19 pandemic panic was to transfer power from the House of Commons to the finance minister. That was one way to deal with the oppositional. Yeah, no kidding. So Bill C-13 aimed to give, them, give the finance minister, Bill Morneau, nearly unlimited power to tax, spend, borrow, and lend until the end of 2021. What could possibly go wrong? Nothing. Nothing, obviously. Which at the time was 21 months away. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Jesus. That's a good philosophy. For comparison, in 1939, the United Kingdom delegated the legislative authority to the war cabinet, except regarding taxation. Well, yeah, I mean, the uh, the income tax is only as recent as, what, World War One, And they said, listen, guys, it's only going to be temporary until we, we kick those Nazis out of Germany and... Then it'll all go away, and it's like, here we are 100 years later. It's like, no, nothing nothing is more permanent than a temporary government program. Yeah, learning history is quite valuable, eh? <laughs> yeah, no shit. So, <laughs> That's why they don't teach it, right? <laughs> or teach what matters. No. So the initial... Ins so without parliamentary scrutiny, the executive has no compelling reason to be prudent or responsible. As Christian Leprec observed a democracy should reciprocate unprecedented restrictions on individual freedoms and unprecedented levels of spending with unprecedented levels of debate and scrutiny well you wouldn't want to have debate you know have you listened to any debates in the house of commons oh recently? my god it's brutal it's terrible it's, it's like yeah what about uh, what about all those jobs you destroyed it's like listen the government has helped to create over five million new jobs it's like yeah but what about the 20 million jobs you destroy yeah it's like you, five, you, five million jobs mr speaker i i reject this nonsense that the opposition <laughs> is putting forward obviously we've created five million jobs like, yeah what about the uh the five fucking 12 14 20 million jobs you destroyed it's like the Mr. Speaker, that guy is an idiot and doesn't know what he's talking about. We have created five million new jobs. Uh, <laughs> it's as if you're watching two different question and answer periods. No, yeah, you're like the, the the deflection of Justin Trudeau is masterful. I masterful. must admit, it, yeah, the guy's it a pro is with that. amazing. As a drama teacher, he really you know mastered his craft. So 100%. I give you props to that, yeah. JT. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, 
Instead, the Trudeau liberals, with the help of the NDP, impose the opposite. Limit debate, increase spending, and retract responsibility. Good strategy. Well, then nobody can be held accountable, and then everyone can have money, and then we solve all of yeah, our problems. And everybody's happy. Everybody. <laughs> so, in effect, policy became whatever the prime minister felt good about. Right, because you don't want to feel bad about things. Obviously, that's just bad. We gotta ignore. We gotta ignore bad feelings. Gotta ignore <laughs> bad feelings, you guys. We'll just print the money, and then everyone feels good, and then everyone's rich, and then yeah. we have just and it's solved rainbows poverty. and lollipops and sunshine, rainbows and lollipops and spending everyone. <laughs> And the balance, the budget balancing itself. Obviously, it just balances itself like a, uh, what's that, a seesaw? Yeah, seesaw balances itself. <laughs> Even when you play by yourself. So, in short, the government of Canada, the noble government of Canada, tried to ignore the will of the people who may have returned Trudeau to office, but at the head of a minority government, with... Around 35% of the popular vote, the f smallest percentage of popular support in Canadian history, governments around the world, dictatorships and liberal democracies, sometimes barely days into the pandemic, made similar attempts at increasing their share of power, which is probably why there was a worldwide anti-lockdown freedom rally that just happened yesterday on May 15th. Oh, perfect. I you think know. I think it is important that that people are voicing their uh, their grievances yeah. and what they're what they're angry with, and I think if there ever was a time to to voice that, there is. But yeah, I think up. I think it requires more. I think we need to, as we've talked about throughout this progress, we need to start with ourselves. Uh, how can we govern ourselves yeah. the best way possible? Yep, yeah, govern and yourself. Once we master that. Maybe we can extend it out to uh, by leading by example to others. Yeah, and it's weird the way that leading by example will affect people. It's you got to learn to lead yourself first before, I guess, criticizing the world and telling everyone how they have to do things yeah. differently. Become your own leader. Yeah, become your own leader first. Start living a life that you know other people want to follow. And yeah, probably just don't toe the line. That'd probably be a good uh, a good option as well. Is uh, don't go along with the narrative and. Speak the yeah. truth as you see fit. And don't don't be afraid to ask questions, as as controversial as that is. Yeah, just hope you don't get sent to the gulag in the process. <laughs> you yeah. might be punished for it, but I think it'll be worth it. Yeah, I think... Just it's... look at the example of Socrates. Exactly. You know, they made him kill himself in the end, but let's not talk about that. we got to control that narrative, Tim. We don't want to let people know that, that, that Socrates was, was killed by a bunch of people, because then people might not want to question authority and... Killed by the government, nonetheless. Yeah. Maybe, maybe another time. Maybe another time. Yeah, that'll be a, that'll be a great topic for another time. But uh, other yeah. than that, uh, that's all we really have for you guys uh, this week. So if uh, you guys do want to like, share, and subscribe, and don't forget to hit that notification bell if we had a notification bell, like all those kids are saying these days. And we're open to feedback, positive or negative. Tell us what you think. Yeah, and if you guys want to hear a uh, particular topic, definitely just drop us an email and we will feel... Uh, absolutely obliged to uh to take care of that for you so other than that sorted skeptics signing out take care guys